We're going to continue our study in Proverbs pertaining to words tonight. It's one of the conceits of our present age that we are so much advanced over those who came before us. We do flatter ourselves in that regard. Flattery is one of the things that we'll be talking about this evening. But we flatter ourselves thinking that um, our technological prowess, um, with which little we, we have little to do other than learning how to use it, but nonetheless we think, well, all this technology must uh, be some indication of our superiority over uh, people who uh, drove horses rather than cars, and things like that. So uh, we have a tendency to elevate ourselves. I, I want to just note in that regard um, a couple things that will hopefully help us to focus our consideration. A couple uh, observations. About 40 years ago, I uh, first read a book by an author whom I admire, and at the same time I have arguments with him, uh, at least in my own mind. He, he doesn't know me, he doesn't listen to me. Uh, but uh, uh, Wendell Berry wrote a very profound uh, analysis of our current age in his book, Standing by Words. Uh, the cover of his book uh, used a little pictograph from, I believe it's Chinese, and it shows uh, in Chinese pictograph form a man standing by his words. Uh, it's a symbol of, or it's the uh, Chinese pictograph for integrity. One who stands, man standing by words. Uh, and in that book, uh, Barry analyzed the maladies of our present time. We have, over time, abused language so badly that uh, as we say things, seldom do they carry the weight that we hope for them. Sometimes we don't even bother to hope for our words. Uh, our words are often empty or false. Um, and so if you have occasion, uh, in addition to the, those Proverbs that we'll be considering tonight, as well as briefly the book of James, chapter 3, uh, a very trenchant uh, analysis of our current age in terms of how we have abused language and consequently robbed language of much of its meaning uh, standing by words. The other thing I'd, I, I recall, um, when one thinks of one's grandparents, you think, well, very nice people, but they, you know, they lived in a different age and they really didn't have as much on the ball as we do. Well, I had that notion uh, taken to task. When I came briefly into the possession of a little, a little book, uh, it was a book that had a locket on it 
and it was designed to be the place where people wrote things to the owner of that little book. Uh, the owner of that little book was my grandmother. Uh, she was a tiny little lady. She was about 4'11". Uh, she was a school teacher. Uh, and when she was 14 years old, I believe it was about 19, or 1899 or 1900, she was given as a birthday present this little booklet or book in which people wrote things to her. Oh, it might be something silly like roses are red, violets are blue. But oftentimes just reflections, just reflections by teenagers living during that time in which they express their affection for her or uh, their admiration uh, of something that they saw around them. I was, I was so amazed at the level of refinement and insight that the teenagers of that time, as well as her parents and others, wrote in her little book that she kept in that uh, little uh, that that little gift that she had received, I was uh, put to shame by the quality of the language that they employed at that time for edification, for the benefit of, uh, in that case, my, my grandmother. And uh, my grandmother now is long gone, her daughter, uh, who, uh, with whom she lived uh, for many years is gone. Uh, my cousin uh, was just telling me as I was visiting him uh, a week or so ago, you know, someday uh, I'll have to turn those things over to you. Uh, I have an interest in those things that somewhat s exceeds uh, his, although he also has some appreciation for them. If I ever have the opportunity, I will share those with you. If I don't, please take my word for it. It, it represents uh, a, a level of the use of language which is edifying, uh, greatly edifying. Well, fortunately, we're not left on our own to search for those kinds of things. God's word addresses us on this matter of words or language as well. And so this evening, uh, I'm going to pick up where Pastor Nathan left off, and I will probably end up repeating some of what he said. But we're going to look at the book of Proverbs, first of all. We're going to look at four wise and winsome ways with words. Uh, somebody who wrote that loved alliteration. So, four wise and winsome ways with words. It's, it's very interesting. Proverbs does not present us with a systematic theology on words, albeit uh, that could be done, uh, because systematic theology serves us very well in many regards. But, but Proverbs, with words as with other things, presents us with a, with a series 
of what it's at times seemed disconnected observations on life. Uh, we're about to dive into these, but as we before we do, let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, one of the gifts that you've given us is the gift of language. And we marvel as we see young children acquiring with, with ease the language that we bandy about ourselves. And at times, Heavenly Father, we are deeply grateful for that gift. And at other times, we are embarrassed as we hear our own careless words repeated in the mouths of our children. Heavenly Father, we pray for your, your Spirit's presence among us tonight as we tackle this topic of the way that we use this gift of yours that you've given to us. We thank you for, indeed, the Word incarnate, your Son, Jesus Christ, who spoke worlds into being. We pray that as we walk, stumbling, faltering at times in his footsteps, that our language would indeed reflect the glory and greatness of our Creator. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first uh, matter with regard to words that we will consider this evening is that words are intended to be fitting, fitting words. I'm going to read uh, a series of Proverbs or a few proverbs that pertain to this. One of them is among my favorite, and it's the first one that we will read. Uh, not because it's my favorite, it just, it just happens this way. It's Proverbs 25, verse 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. The translation that we have here puts this uh, as perhaps the original does as well in terms of like jewelry. Uh, something of great artistry wrought by its maker. A word fitly spoken like an apple of gold in a setting of silver. Proverbs 15, verse 23. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season, how good it is. You sense the similarity between those two proverbs. And then we close with our, our reading on this particular topic of fittingness. Proverbs 12.25. Proverbs 12.25 Anxiety in a man's heart 
weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. What can we say about what it is that makes a word fitting? The author of the commentary that I drew from, which is the same as Pastor Nathan is using, notes that these words are fitting in their expression. That is to say, what they say, but not merely in their expression, not merely in the, in the crafting of the language, but also, as we note from that last one that I read, the timing of the word is so important. So, fittingness in this instance, fittingness which gives rise to this comparison with a beautiful piece of jewelry is not simply what it says, but the fact that it's timely. Um, compare that, for example, that 1225, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Compare that to Proverbs 25, verse 20. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Okay? Know when to say what you need to say as well as simply what to say. There's a time. There's a time for the fitting word. And as we ponder this, we ask ourselves, now, how do I... How do I come to know that? It's not simply a matter of cleverness. What is it that enables a person to speak a fitting word? What to say and when to say it? And that truly is uh, a matter of careful observation to be sure. In a sense, a love for the object of your consideration, the person that you're speaking to, a real care for the person. And also an internal awareness yourself. And that is, like I say, it's not a matter of cleverness, that's a matter of wisdom, a grace that is imparted to you as you seek to, to walk in the Lord's way. Careful observation attended by love that truly enables and, and uh, equips one to speak that fitting word. And you know, as Pastor Nathan, I think, observed as he's gone through this, uh, some of those moments of greatest regret is when, for whatever reason, and you ponder, what is the reason where you chose the wrong word or the right word but at the wrong time? But the speaker as well as the recipient too is in, 
is in need of grace, and uh, the Lord gives that grace to us. Uh, but that, that, that beauty of language and the healing power of language in the hands of the craftsman that can be applied. Uh, I recall, and I've, I think I've recounted this, my grandfather, that is to say my mother's father, uh, was his, his last name was Smith, and his occupation was was crafting things with his hands. Uh, his name fit him well. He was a smith with iron and with metal and welding, and he expected the same of me. Uh, that was the furthest thing from the scope of my ability. Uh, but uh, fortunately, uh, from another strain in the family, uh, I learned words. My dad was, was not, uh, not gifted with words, but I recall so often my father stopping as he was speaking and saying, now how should I say this? Uh, how does one say this? And uh, though, like I say, he was not an orator by any means, I learned at his side to take care. And it's a lesson that I need to learn again and again, but to, to take care with the choice of words. How does one best say this? Um, the fittingness of words is the first of the four wise and winsome ways to put words to good use. A second consideration that we have this evening is pleasant words. Let's take a look at... Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, very helpful, very helpful observation, Nate. Uh, and, and we know that, that the well-timed, we all kind of yearn for the ability to put that to use, that someone has just laid themselves bare to the opportunity to deflate them. And oh, the person who can do that, just puncture the pride of a buffoon with a well-chosen zinger. And then, in the face of that temptation, to say, no. I'm working, uh, I know, uh, do, do you ever fall to that temptation? <laughs> yes. Uh, John. Well, uh, Proverbs 25, 20, I think it's kind of saying, I don't know, maybe I didn't hear you talk about it so much, but that 
you know, the wrong words are also the bad thing. Yes. To that, say to someone, you know, come on, let's sing, it's happy when they have a heavy heart. Right. It's wrong. Exactly. Yeah, like a, taking a garment away on a cold day. And uh, I was tempted to go to the cupboard and get vinegar and pour it on soda. What happens, by the way? Yeah, it, it's... Uh, yeah. Yes, it's... it's uh, there was a time where... Uh, uh, I think it was during World War II where uh, into Lake Michigan, they used to back up to a, a place in Lake Michigan and they would dump... Uh, dump chemicals into the lake. It was kind of like a, you know, it was just, yeah, hiss and fizz and sputter. Uh, well, on a small scale, vinegar on soda. And, and yes, words can be destructive like that, as you've noted, John, to, uh, to say the, the, the thing which may not be a wrong thing, but to say it at the wrong time, uh, a heavy heart ministering to a heavy heart uh, with there are good songs but there are also uh, light and foolish songs that simply compound the problem uh, in fact you probably know that for yourself oftentimes when you're down you sing to yourself and what do you choose to sing you, you choose a song that's fitting to that sorrow or that lament um, and, and so we, in a sense, self-select uh, the song that will minister to our hearts. And that's what we hope from others as well, is that they will recognize our grief in those times, recognize our sorrows, and if they do in insist on singing, that it will at least be the right type of song. Any other thoughts on the fittingness of words? Nate? Yeah, a great case in point for these Proverbs is some of the most enduring and influential speeches in history have been a matter of not just the right words, but the right words to the right audience at the right time. Yeah. That's why to this day we still remember Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech or the speeches that Winston Churchill gave to the parliament or the list would go on and on. Things yeah. that were delivered with the right words but also at the right time. At the right time, yeah. That sense of of time, and like I say, that's not so much a, a function of cleverness. It's not a matter of smartness, but it's a matter of deep identity with the recipient of your words, knowing, knowing uh, with grace what needs to be ministered to the heart at that time. Uh, pleasant words, moving on then to Proverbs 16, Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. The comparison of gracious words to honey. Now we're going to explore that a little bit further. Um, a little later on, but we look in the meantime at Proverbs 15, verse 4. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. 
perverseness in the tongue, in this case perverseness, even in the gentle tongue, perverseness breaks the spirit. So a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Turning back to Proverbs 16, 23, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words, I've previously read that, uh, Psalm 16:21. the wise of heart is called discerning and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. The uh, Hebrew on these, uh, on these texts is somewhat obscure, but the, uh, the uh, ESV has tried to capture there that uh, sweet speech, sweet speech is uh, gracious speech, and gracious speech is persuasive speech. You know that. For those of you who are teachers, for those of you who have uh, ministered to children in the learning process, um, the bond between teacher and learner is not simply a matter of the mind. The bond between teacher and learner that gives rise to learning is a bond of grace where the student understands the teacher's deep love and concern for their well-being which then kindles the desire in the child or in the learner to grasp what is being said uh, and thus the words of the teacher are persuasive But it is also the case, and I'm seeking the verse. Let's see here where that is. That's not it. It's, uh, it's the care that must be taken when you're dealing with honey there comes a point where enough is enough, okay? You know that uh, if, you've, if, you have, if you've observed a child, a child typically loves honey, uh, but that child oftentimes doesn't know when to quit with the honey. Uh, they, whereas it should be perhaps a, a level spoonful, well, pretty soon it becomes two or three spoonfuls and uh, you say, no, enough, enough. And uh, they, somewhat besotted with the honey, no, more, more, I want more. Uh, so also with uh, the use of honey in our words, moderation. Uh, moderation in our application of sweetness so that it does not become uh, part of the problem rather than part of the persuasiveness. 
I think we'll come to that in our next section, complementary words. Complementary words, compliments, so important. People, as we've noted, the heavy heart needs encouragement. All of us need encouragement. Complementary words are addressed in Proverbs 27, verse 2. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Similar uh, thought addressed in uh, connecting it to honey. Proverbs 25, verse 27. It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. There's sometimes a limit. In fact, uh, always a limit to the amount of sweetness that uh, we handle or that we seek. Um, 27 verse 2, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. There's a great German proverb which captures this well in a very uh, direct fashion. I don't know if any of you know German here, but I will read it in German and then we'll unpack it. These words applied in the context of the German language, Eigenlob stinkt, Freundeslob hinkt, Fremdeslob clinked. In a rhyme there, what is Eigenlob? Eigenlob is self-praise. Self-praise stinks. As only the German language, well, German and Dutch, they capture these concepts with such clarity in terms of the way the words sound. Eigenlob stinkt. Freundeslob hinkt. A friend's praise limps. Fremdeslob clinked. Stranger's praise rings. Okay, and you, you see how that proverb in German has captured this. Praise yourself, it stinks. Your friends praise you, well, that's a little bit better, but it limps. You want your praise to ring? Then the praise of a stranger, a stranger who praises you, that rings. Compliments are healthy in moderation because as that other proverb noted, don't look for too much honey. It's not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. The person and each one of us uh, is well served by learning how to compliment, to encourage the heart of another, but also in doing so to exercise restraint If not exercised in restraint, we might be found a flatterer and our compliments become snares. So, a proper balance, a restraint in the application of our compliments. And these are, these are words of wisdom that the Lord himself has imparted to us in the Proverbs. 
Finally, for our consideration, reproving words. These are some of the toughest, and in our own day, uh, we, and, and perhaps this has always been the case, reproving words are words that we often seek to avoid. Let's take a look once and see what it is that we're avoiding at our peril. Proverbs 25, verse 12, like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Why is it that we avoid reproof? What is it? Pardon? Fear of backlash. Okay. In terms of us using reproving words, let's look at the other. Let's just look at the other side for a moment. Why is it that we avoid someone reproving us? What is it that causes us to steer clear of a wise reproof? What might it be that we avoid situations where we open ourselves to reproof? It might be the truth. It could be the truth. And then you're ashamed or feel regret. That's right, regret or shame. Yeah, that feeling of, yes, I have been Someone has perceived me correctly, and it hurts. And I am called to account in a way that, yeah. Other thoughts? Receiving reproof. It's a spotlight on those things that we think are private or don't like to have exposed. Yeah. Yeah. Oftentimes we can fool ourselves. And it's a struggle, but finally we've succeeded and we have fooled ourselves. And then someone else comes along and shines the light of day on it. And what an embarrassment. Not only embarrassment in the sight of others, but also our own embarrassment as we you know, wrestle with our own self-deception. Yeah. Jan pointed out one reason why we are reluctant to give reproof. Um, yeah, the fear of ourselves being on the receiving end of anger, perhaps. Or maybe we fear that it would serve as an invitation for others to take a close look at us and uncover our own shortcomings. Jan. Well, I was also thinking that with Jesus, because he that said it, uh, get the log out of your own eye. You know, a lot of times, you never feel perfect enough to be able to tell somebody something. Yeah, that, that is true. Uh, um, this, is, uh, this is not easy, uh, because um, we tell ourselves, look, I'm not the one to identify the problem here. Uh, and so, in some ways, we have a mutual pact with each other to avoid destruction, okay? You don't say anything about me, and I won't point out your problems, okay? 
So we'll get along fine as long as we understand the rules. You leave me alone, I leave you alone, we smile at each other, and we go on. And there's some wisdom to that. I mean, you don't want to spend your whole time uh, tussling and, and so forth. At the same time, I think that probably, and, and scriptures attest to this, that the deepest friendships are the friendships that open themselves to mutual reproof. Um, if in a marriage you can speak words of reproof to each other and grow and benefit from it, that is a good marriage. And I must admit, there are times where I avoid difficult discussions. And I know that my wife has avoided difficult discussions with me <laughs> uh, because it just is painful. And yet, to reach the level of mutual love and understanding where we can address each other in, uh, in an honest way, not striking out in retaliation, but truly for our mutual benefit and growth, lifting each other up. And, and I just pray for each of us the, the, op the opportunity to have friends who are able to do that with us and for us. Uh, and that truly should mark us also as a worshiping community uh, where not to, uh, not to pull the log out of the eye of another, uh, but having engaged in careful self-examination to engage in that deep act of, of friendship in which mutual reproof and encouragement can occur. And that's, I think, what's being addressed here in Proverbs 25, 12, which says, like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Let's also take a look at Proverbs 28, 23. Whoever rebukes a man, whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. 28.23. 28.23. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. And we know that from the hurt that we... Oops. We know it takes a bit of time to process that. And Proverbs 28:23 recognizes that and says, afterward, afterward. Uh, so if you do indeed, uh, with proper spirit, decide to engage in reproof, you better be patient, okay? Uh, I better be patient. And 
the Lord knows I have much greater need for reproof than to receive than to offer, but uh, yes. Um, flattery. Uh, yeah, Nate. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. It, it lands very differently. Yes, it really does. When our own embarrassment is the occasion for our reproving others, yeah, it's it's very difficult to to do that in, in the proper spirit and with the right aim. Yeah. Thanks, Nate. Uh, very true. Um, Any, anyone who would like to just offer a thought or two on reproof, its difficulty as well as its purpose. Well, I, I think of, you know, we all have like teachers that remember maybe from grade school or, that were tough on us. Uh, I remember a guy that one of my first jobs out of high school working in the freight where he just rode you, you know, this guy was like a, you know, Marine sergeant and just continued, but I learned so much from him. And I hated him at the time. You know, you kind of hate him when you first get that. But, you know, like Mr. Vandermay, the choir director in grade school, he was a tough cookie, but he created so many good singers out of that choir. And I think I learned how to work from that guy, you know, at 18, that I, I needed a kick in the butt. And, you know, afterwards you're thankful for the yeah. view, for the fact that they got on you. That's a tough one, John. Uh, and I'm glad that from this distance you can say that. Uh, uh, because uh, reproof, whether it's in a harsh spirit or in a right spirit, uh, but especially a, a harsh reprover can sour, uh, sour the spirit of a child. Uh, oh, I have one other thought. One of the problems said that it was good for the soul and it was health for the body. Yeah. I think we kind of overlook that health for the body part as Christians sometimes because we tend to be, you know, think only of the spirit, which is important, obviously. Yeah. But, you know, following God's wisdom is also healthy. Yeah. I'm not going to say it's going to give us all health, but right. <laughs> it, is, it also brings health to the body. Yeah, good, good point. That unity of body and soul... Uh, it's not simply the soul uh, that's being fed, but the soul within the body gives health to the body as well. Uh, 25, 12, 28, 23, 27, 5. Other thoughts as I'm looking up that. And I'd love to hear from, we've spoken of children, and we do so as if you're not here. Uh, please, uh, children. Uh, God also gives wisdom to children. We're past six, okay. No, that sounded like reproof to me, and I, I, I needed to hear that. <laughs> uh, 27.5, better is open rebuke than hidden love. <laughs> A word aptly spoken. <laughs> 
And, uh, and I cannot think of a better word on which to end things than that. <laughs> better is uh, open rebuke than hidden love. Uh, these words I'd like to encourage you to do, as I was thinking about this, uh, I will not take the time, uh, for reasons that are now obvious, uh, to uh, read James 3. But as I was thinking about these words from Proverbs, I thought, now note how James takes his discussion of the tongue and links it, just cheek by jowl, with wisdom. Wisdom and the tongue, side by side, in James 3. So as I read James 3 now, I'll say, you know, James, that Jewish child schooled thoroughly in the scriptures, he had Proverbs well in view as he wrote his profound words on the use of our tongues. Uh, but let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the richness of your word, for its aptness speaking into our lives at just the right time in the right way. We pray that as we uh, go from here and as we speak with one another and as we use words to build one another up, to offer encouragement, the word aptly spoken to the heavy heart as we offer reproof or receive reproof that your spirit will indeed be present and take those words and apply them in a way that glorifies you and edifies us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, I had worried that just A, B, C, and D would take me about 10 minutes. Why did I need to worry? Uh, do we have uh, 